Lord, I thank you for our time in your word and in 1 Samuel. I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you'd equip me to say exactly what you want me to say, and that I would be pleasing to you in how I teach the lecture. I pray that we would all have hearts that receive your word and that are changed by it. And I ask for your blessing on this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have to confess that I'm really excited about 1 Samuel. I'm excited about all the study, and I'm excited about all the books, and all of scripture is profitable, but I love 1 Samuel, and I kind of anticipate getting to it. And I'm like, oh, we're finally here. It's 1 Samuel week. So I'm very excited about this, and this is the halfway point of our study. We are now halfway through our study of the Old Testament, which to me is also um, a mile marker. So we are going to begin 1 Samuel today, and as we approach the book of 1 Samuel, we always review, but today I want to focus our review on the king and the kingdom. And we've always talked about the king and the kingdom, but I'm going to kind of leave out everything else to highlight that so that we can really trace that thread because the book of Samuel is so, the book of Samuel is setting up the theology of the king. But this has been God's plan from the beginning. So we see that in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis 1, we saw, the, we remember how we define the kingdom. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so we saw that God created Adam and Eve he put them in his place, the Garden of Eden, and he ruled them by his good word when he gave them the command that you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we see them living in the garden, and this is what Graham's Goldworthy called, right, the pattern of the kingdom. And we also saw that Adam is set up as a king. He is to rule the earth. We saw that in Genesis 1.26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why are, they made in God's Im why are we made in God's image? And let them have dominion. Then if you jump down to verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. That word dominion means rule. Adam was to rule. He was to be the king. And we said he was the lowercase k king under God, the capital K king. He is a co-regent. He has a mediatorial rule, right? God is obviously ruling over him with his word, but then Adam was set up as a king. And then Professor Chow says that God from the beginning has designed his glory to be displayed in his human king, right? So since the very beginning, since Adam, Adam and all of creation meant, we remember the whole earth is be filled with the glory of God, but God's image bearers were Adam and Eve, and Adam is the king, and he's to reflect God's glory. So God has designed his glory to be displayed in his human king, and that's going to play a critical role in the book of Samuel. That his glory is going to be displayed in his human king. Well, then we saw in Genesis 3 what we called the colossal collapse uh, or the perished kingdom, right? They rebel against God's good word, and the kingdom is lost. But God gives us hope in Genesis 3.15 where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see that the seed is going to come from the woman, and this seed is going to be a serpent crusher, and that's where our hope is. But we also see that this seed, he's going to stand in the place of all that come, right? He's going to be the one who stands for all of Eve's descendants, and he's going to crush the serpent for them. So he see him as a substitute. And there's also hints, it's not clear here, but it's hints that he's going to be divine and human. Human because he's a descendant of Eve, but divine because only one who is divine can crush a divine supernatural being such as the serpent. So we start seeing these threads are all here in Genesis um, 3. Some of them become clearer as scripture continues progressive revelation, but we see that we're now tracing the seed. And then quickly, in Genesis 12, we find out that seed is going to be preserved and come through a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And we talked about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and the land, seed, and blessing promise of that. 
And what is important about the covenant, and I, if I haven't said it before, let me say it now. Again, Graham's Goldworthy is so helpful here. He says that God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. And when we talk about the covenants, we're talking about the kingdom. Why? Because the seed is preserved through the Abrahamic covenant. The kingdom is coming through the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, that there's going to be one who's going to give blessing to the whole earth. And this just gets further developed in Genesis. In Genesis 14, we see them in the Valley of Kings, and we see Melchizedek come out as a king and a priest. Then we see um, chapter 17, that God says explicitly in the Abrahamic covenant that a king is coming from Abraham's line. And then in Genesis 49.10, he makes it even more explicit. He says the king is coming not only through Abraham's line, but through the tribe of Judah. And he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And when Shiloh comes, remember we looked at these verses in detail back in Genesis, but he is going to bring curse, and he's going to take curse and turn it to blessing. And he's going to have worldwide rule. So in Genesis, God has set it up that there is a seed, and he is a king. And this king is going to have global rule, and he is going to have global sovereignty, and he is going to turn curse to blessing. And we already saw that there's that picture that he'll be a mediator and a substitute and a divine king, as well as a human king. So going back to our phrase, God has designed his glory to be displayed in a human king. That takes us to Exodus, where we see that Israel is redeemed as a nation. There to be a holy people, a redeemed people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But then again, the king theme comes up in Numbers 24, 17, where in Balaam's prophecies, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and shall destroy the survivors of the city. So again, that dominion, that king is coming and he is going to rule. And that brought us to the book of Deuteronomy where we looked at the law and the heart of the law. But today, when we go to Deuteronomy, I want us to look at the law for the king. So if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 17, while you're turning there, God gave very specific rules for his king. And we're going to summarize them, <coughs> excuse me, with the three G's. A professor back in college taught them to me this way, three G's. The king is supposed to not multiply wives. He is not to multiply money or gold. And he's not to multiply horses. And so way to remember this is there's no gold, no gals, no giddy-up, the three Gs. Those are the rules of the king, right? No goals, gold, no gals, and no giddy-up. The king is not to do those things. But then if you look in verse 18, there's something the king is supposed to do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So even though there's a plan for God's king to rule and display his glory, the king is still under God's good word. He is still ruled by God, the capital K, king. And that brings us to Joshua. We saw God's covenant faithfulness as the Abrahamic promises begin to be fulfilled, and they are the, God's people, Israel, in God's place, the kingdom, right? The land of Israel, and they're still under his law right, under his rule and blessing. But then in Judges, we see the covenant unfaithfulness, and they don't obey the law, and that cycle of the, the curses from Deuteronomy, where they disobey, covenant unfaithfulness and the curses, but that dark backdrop 
becomes the backdrop that makes Ruth shine, right? And they hurt Ruth and Boaz's covenant faithfulness as they show what it means to be a redeemer, as Boaz shows that, and they show what it means to follow Yahweh despite what the culture looks like. And Ruth is critical because Ruth is going to be the great-grandmother, right, of David. She is going to set up the line. They're going to be the line of the king. So that brings us to 1 Samuel. So we see that God has a plan for a king, a king that's going to display his glory. So as you turn to 1 Samuel, if you're not already there, I just want to give you a little background about the book. So today as we go through Samuel, we're going we're to be looking at the whole book, which is a lot, right? So I want you to imagine that we're riding in a helicopter, and we're going to look at the big picture scene. We're going to see how it all fits together, but even though we're looking at the big picture and the themes and the major threads of the kingdom and the seed, we're going to land the helicopter because God's word is infinitely deep. And we're going to land it in some critical places in 1 Samuel, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper. We're going to look a little bit closer. And that's how I picture this as we go through it today. hope that will be helpful to you as well. This book of Samuel, Samuel and 1 Samuel are actually one book. The reason they got split into two is because when they translated it into Greek, it didn't fit on one scroll. But it's one book, and that helps us to understand that it's one story. It opens with Hannah's song, it closes with David's lament, it opens and closes with a song, and it's telling one, it has one main theme, and it is the theology of a king. God is teaching us, he's taught us about a priest, what the priests need to be. He's taught us what a mediator needs to be in Moses. He showed us the office of prophets, the mediator and priest, and now he's teaching us what are the ideals of kingship? What is the theology of a king? And this is going to be so critical for understanding the Davidic covenant. Because remember, the covenant promises are kingdom promises, and the Davidic covenant is going to be the covenant, as one person said, to rule them all. Okay? It's going to be the covenant that all the other covenants become wrapped up in. So we're going to understand a theology of kingship. We're also going to see how important it is that Israel understands that Yahweh is their king. Even though God is going to set up... Um, a kingship, they are still under God. Um, so, sorry. so as we begin, we're going to land our helicopter right away, and we're going to look in. Um, sorry, there was one quote I wanted to say about this book, and I seem to have lost it in my notes, but it was good enough that I'm going to look for it for just a second. Um, but I lost it. All right. So we're going to look at Hannah, and we're going to look in chapter 2. Hannah is a godly woman, but Hannah has a trial. And I'm sure that all of us can relate to that today, that we all come with various trials. We have heartaches in our past. If we're not experiencing a trial now, we know that they will come in the future. And Hannah is barren. And in Israel, that was a great reproach. And not only is she barren, but her husband, likely because of her barrenness, has taken a second wife who loves to remind her of her reproach, who loves to rub salt in the wound and point out where she is deficient and where she is lacking. But Hannah takes this to the Lord. Hannah um, takes, her prayer, takes her weakness, takes her sadness, and she cries out to God. She pours out her prayers to him, and she turns to him and says, please deliver me, right? She, she, she's so... Um, she takes all of her needs to the throne of grace. She takes all of her problems to God where the answers to problems can be found. But one thing that Hannah also joins in is she joins in her into a fellowship of suffering, Dale Ralph Davies says, a fellowship of barrenness. Sarah has been barren. Hannah has, um, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, they're all barren. 
and now Hannah is. And we see that often in, in redemptive history, God starts with man's complete and total inability. And it is from that place that he stretches forth his hand and he works. He takes what we can't do, he takes our nothingness, he takes what's impossible for us, and that's where he begins to work. And every time that redemptive history moves forward, we see these miraculous births. We see these impossible, apart from God, situations where God raises up his line, his seed, and we know that it is not a work of man, it is a work of God. But we also see that God does this in Hannah in conjunction with her coming and throwing herself at the throne of grace and crying out to him for his help and his deliverance. And I don't know what trials you've brought today. I don't know, sometimes we just have minor trials. Right now my family's just been dealing with you know, the flu and different sicknesses that are just more common. Sometimes there's great grief um, and long-term problems that we deal with. Whatever the problem is that we have, we need to be like Hannah, and we too need to come and approach the throne of grace and cast our cares on the Lord. And while God did answer Hannah's petition the way she asked, he gives her a child, I can't promise you that what you're asking for God is what he will give you. I can promise you that he will work out your trials to his purpose end. He says in Psalm 84:11 that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, and that he is working this trial together for good in your life, and just like he heard Hannah, he hears you, and he is working for your good and his purpose end for what he is doing. And in, in while we don't see it in our daily life, what he is still doing in the big picture of his plan, and we can trust him. And that's what we see in Hannah's life. We see this trust in Yahweh, and then God answers her prayer, and he answers it in a beautiful way, and she comes back and she praises him. And I want us to look at her prayer of praise in chapter 2. There's this theme that God is going to lift up the lowly, that God is the one who raises up, and God is the one who brings down. It says in verse 7, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And we, we don't, this is what God does. Everything is of God's work. We see how she understands the sovereignty of God and his power. We also see that she calls the Lord, the Lord of hosts. This is the first time that God has ever called that. She knows God so well. And remember, what scripture does she have? She has Genesis through Joshua. She knows him so well, she calls him a name he hasn't been called. And look with me at the end of her song. In the end of verse 10, he says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. She knows that a king is coming, and she knows that this is his plan, and she knows what God wants to do with the king, and she's trusting in his future promises. Hannah is a woman of deep theology. And then when we get to the New Testament and we see Mary's Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat is Hannah's prayer. She has memorized and internalized the word, and that is what comes out in Mary's heart. And so are we the same? Are we women who, when we have trials, take them to God, and when God answers and God blesses, is this what would come, do we have theology that would pour out of our heart and praise? Do we have theology where we can give God personal names and we can, in scripture, is just what is coming out of us? Are we like Mary who so internalized the word and Hannah who knows the word so well that that is what comes out of our hearts? I'd love to spend a lot more time on, on Hannah, but we're going to get back up in the helicopter and we're going to look at the the, the big picture of the book of Samuel, and we're going to have three points in our outlines today. The first point is going to be Samuel, God's prophet. The second point is going to be Saul, the people's choice of king. And the third is going to be David, God's choice of king. 
And the reason that Hannah is so important is because Samuel is so important. So Samuel's God's prophet, and God wants everyone to know that he is truly his prophet and truly his judge, and it starts with his miraculous birth. And so there's three things that God does to show the importance of Samuel. And he shows this because Samuel's going to be the kingmaker. Who Samuel anoints as king, that's the king. And so God doesn't want there to be any questions that the Davidic line is the legitimate line, that David is the legitimate king. And so he goes to great lengths to show that Samuel is his legitimate prophet. So we see it first in his miraculous birth, but then we also see it in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Samuel's called by God. We know the story, right? The Lord calls him, and he gives him a prophecy about Eli's house. But maybe you noticed in your study this week, it's a prophecy that was already given in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the man of God comes, and he says, Eli, here's what's happening to your home. You turn the page, and Samuel gets the same prophecy. Why is that? Well, remember, Samuel is very young. I have three boys that are very young. Boys, all children, have very active imaginations, right? And so this is to say, this isn't a young boy's imagination. This isn't a dream that he had. This isn't a funny story he's making up. God has already established this as a true prophecy through the man of God who came in chapter 2, and now he's showing Samuel's my true prophet. I'm giving him the same word. It's to establish Samuel. And then we note, and if you look at with me in verse 19 through 20, these are the key verses here. It says, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Right? He's an established prophet. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And that geography, that Dan to Beersheba, that it, Dan's in the north, Beersheba's in the south. It's saying all of Israel recognizes this. So remember, what did we learn last week in the time of the judges? We learned in the time of the judges that um, remember, the, the judges weren't strong enough to rule all of Israel. Israel was these tribal states. Israel was divided. But now Samuel is a judge like Othniel. He's a judge like Joshua. He's one who's united Israel again. That is how much that God is with him. And then in chapter 7, we see it in that he leads true revival and true repentance. So in chapter 7, the people come to Mitzpah, and they're mourning over their sin. And Samuel says, if you're truly repentant, put away your idols and follow God. And how do we know that this is true revival? Well, we see it in the Philistines' response. The Philistines had a very simple foreign policy. It worked like this. If God is for Israel, we lose. So we're going to do what Moab did about Baal Peor. We're going to cause them to be covenantly unfaithful. If they break the covenant, then we win. So we've got to keep Israel in covenant unfaithfulness. So the worst thing that can happen to the Philistines is that Israel repents, right? There's no, when Israel repents, the Red Sea parts, the Jordan backs up, the walls of Jericho fall down, no Israelites die. It's devastation for the Philistines. So they come to attack. We don't want revival. And God routes them. God fights for Israel. God destroys the Philistines. Israel, and we see that Samuel is the judge over this. So God is establishing that Samuel is his true judge. When Samuel speaks, God speaks. So the narrator is taking care to make us know that he is his true prophet, and he's established him through his miraculous birth, the prophecies, the revival, and the victories over his enemies. And you might have noticed I skipped the story about the ark, right, in chapters 4 through 6, when Hophni and Phinehas, they take the ark. And I just want us to note one thing about that story. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, they've turned the tabernacle into a brothel, and now they're going to battle, and they decide, you know what? We'll just, we're not going to follow God's ways, but God can't let the ark get captured, right? So we'll just manipulate God. We'll bring the ark, and then God can't let anything happen to his presence, so that'll give us victory, even though we're not being obedient. 
but God cannot be manipulated and God cannot be controlled and God does not need us to defend his honor and his glory. And he lets the ark get captured and that ark goes to every major Philistine city and in each of those cities, he is victorious over their idols and over the city. And God himself defends himself. I mean, the, the Philistines are quickly sending the ark back, aren't they? Because God fights for Israel. God can bring glory to himself. God showed himself powerful. And he's reminding Israel, I'm the king. You don't manipulate me. You don't rule over me. I'm the king. And so, and I will not be manipulated by you. Well, Samuel rules well, but he gets old, and the people do not want to go back to the time of the judges. They don't want to go back to the darkness. They don't want to go back to the chaos. And so they ask Samuel for a king. And I want to look quickly at who they pick. So we're going to go to point two, Saul, the people's choice for a king. The people request a king, and I've just taken a long time explaining to you, right, from Genesis to Judges, that God has a plan for a king. God has a plan to make his, display his glory through a king. But then he says right here that Israel's wrong to ask for a king. Why are they wrong? It's because of the motives of their heart. If you look in 819, it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you remember back in Genesis the pains the Lord took to teach Jacob that God fights for Israel? In fact, that's what Israel means, God fights for you. It is wrong to ask for a king. They're rejecting the covenant here. They're asking for a king, not a covenant king that God wants. They're asking for a king that will fight for them instead of God, that will make them be like the other nations, which we saw in Exodus is the antithesis of what God wants Israel to be. God wants Israel to be kingdom of priests, to reach the nations. He wants them to be a holy nation that's set apart so that the world will know who God is and come to saving knowledge of God. And they're saying, we, the covenant's too hard, and we don't want to go back to the craziness of the judges, so we're rejecting the covenant, and we're rejecting the judges, and we want to be like the other nations and have a king. So this is a rejection of the covenant, and that's why it is so serious. But we also, and then we also see that in who they choose as a king. What are the qualifications for Saul? When we look at Saul, what do we say? He's a head taller, right, than everybody else. So the first qualification for Saul is that he is a tall person. I am tall. I once looked it up. I can't remember now, but I think I'm in like the top 2% of height for women, maybe even higher. Like I remember, and I didn't think much about it because I'm like the third shortest. I have two sisters that are taller than me. I have a very tall family, so I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I'm super tall. I was just average in my family. And so I can tell you what being tall qualifies for you. It does not make you athletic. It does not make you smart. It doesn't make you a leader. It doesn't make you godly. It does make riding on planes very uncomfortable because of the leg room, and you are qualified to reach high things for people. That's all it does for you, okay? So Saul has no inherent qualifications because he's tall. There's nothing that makes him a good king because of this. He also has another helpful qualification. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this isn't track with me, but this is going to play out a lot when we get to the books of First and Second Kings. Do you remember in Genesis 49 that Judah, because the first three sons of Leah disqualified themselves, Judah got the right of the firstborn. So Judah is the dominant tribe. But remember also that Joseph's the firstborn of Rachel, and he got the double portion. 
Remember that his two sons get counted as tribes in Israel, and instead of, so there's no tribe of Joseph, there's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and Manasseh is the dominant tribe there. And there's this tension, and, and so if you're looking at a map, pretend this is Israel, Ephraim's in the north, Judah's in the south, and there's always a north-south tension. Who's going to be the more powerful tribe? Who's going to be the leader? And right sandwiched in between them is a little buffer, Benjamin. And so if you're rejecting the covenant, you're not going to pick the king that's from the covenant line, Judah, right? God's already said that's where the covenant king is coming from. So we don't want to do that because we don't want the covenant promises. That's too hard. And if we pick from Ephraim, Judah, they're out of here. If we pick from Judah, the north is out of here. So we're going to pick from Benjamin. So it's a very political, he's a buffer zone. It's a very political move to pick from Benjamin. And this jealousy, if you read in Isaiah 11, 13 through 14, it says the jealousy of Ephraim, it's speaking of the millennial kingdom. So in the millennial kingdom, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. This tribal tension is going to exist all the way until the millennial kingdom when the true king comes and rectifies it. So it's going to really play a part in 2 Samuel, but really in King, First and Second Kings. So the people have chosen, they have chosen a political man from the tribe of Benjamin and a tall man, and Samuel in chapter 12 gives his farewell. And Samuel's going to remind them in verse 12 of something critical. He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey him, obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. God is reminding them, you still have to submit. My professor, Todd Boland, said, Israel wanted success without submission. In rejecting the covenant and asking for the king, they wanted success without submission. And God's saying, I'm giving you a king, but you still have to submit. And your king still has to submit. Israel is going to have a theocratic monarchy where the king is still under the capital K king. He's also reminding them that, remember the Abrahamic covenant? It was a unilateral covenant. It wasn't 50-50 between God and Abraham. It was 100% God saying, I choose you. I'm making you my people, I'm giving you these promises, and I'm going to bring them to pass. You're still under the covenant, because I made the covenant, and it's unilateral. So even though Israel is, God is reminding them, you're going to have a king that's under me, and you're my people, I am your covenant God. So that's going to bring us to now looking at the life of Saul, the people's choice, in chapter 13, and Saul starts out well, right, in delivering Jabesh Gilead. He starts out well, he delivers the tribe, the people are following him, but it lasts for a blink of an eye. And then by chapter 13, Saul is making an unlawful sacrifice. And that sacrifice is going to cost him the perpetuity of the line. So God says, your sons are not going to rule. You've made this unlawful sacrifice, and so now I'm not establishing your house. I'm going to give it to another. He says, I'm going to choose one, right? In um, chapter 13, I think it's verse 14, he says, um, 1314, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So your sons aren't going to rule because of this unlawful sacrifice. Then in chapter 15, he goes and he does, he's, God says, take out the Amalekites, defeat them. And he doesn't, right? He does exactly what, um, I think, 
kind of thing. But he does what the man did when he, um, in uh, Jericho, who kept all the spoil for himself. Achan, thank you. He did what Achan did. He didn't, he kept the best of the sheep. He keeps the best of the land. He doesn't kill the king, right? He doesn't wipe out the Amalekites. And this is going to have a far-reaching effect into Israel's history. When we get to Esther, Haman is an Amalekite. And the Amalekites keep attacking the Jews for and harassing them. So this disobedience is severe. And God says, because of this, you're no longer king. I've rejected you as being king. And if Saul was repentant at this point, he would have abdicated. He would have said, God, I, I've disqualified myself and I've abdicated, but he doesn't. In his book, From Creation to the Cross, Albert Bayless says, both these failures show that Saul has a mistaken notion of kingship, one that Yahweh will not bear. The notion that like other ancient kings, Israel king would be an absolute monarch, that his rule would be law. No, Israel already has a law given by God, not developed by the king. Moses specifically warned about the king's considering himself above the law. Rather, like Joshua, the king was to be a student of the law that he might obey it. Torah is higher than the king. Prophet is higher than the king. Both are Yahweh's instructions. So now we're going to see that Saul is going to operate for the rest of the book of Samuel as a foil for David. He's going to be that contrast. Saul's going to show us what the king shouldn't be in compared to what David, and David's going to show us the ideals of kingship. David's going to do what the king should do and show us the theology of what God wants in a king. In his book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, Jason Drushi says one of the most central messages in the book is found in the sustained contrast between the first King Saul and the second King David. In the middle portion of the book, Saul is portrayed as a terrible royal figure, while David is a terrific one. By distinguishing these two individuals, Yahweh reveals his ideals for kingship as set forth in Deuteronomy. So this is going to bring us to our third point, David, God's choice of king. And we looked in our lesson and we saw that God is choosing David because David has a heart after God. And so the ideal king is going to be one who loves Yahweh and has a heart for the Lord. And so, Saul, remember, Samuel's the kingmaker. He sends Samuel to find David. He finds David, he anoints him, and David is the king. And right away, the story of David and Goliath is the next chapter, the next story, to show that David is the king. It is validating David's kingship, and it's showing how the true king should work. You've probably heard that Goliath was about nine feet tall, but when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, it's the actual translation there is that he was four cubits in a span, which comes out to about 6'9". So he's a little shorter. Why would I point that out? Who's a head taller than everybody in Israel? Saul is. It just highlights the cowardice of Saul to not go fight against Goliath. It highlights that here's your tall king, like your other nations, and he should be able to go fight the tall guy on the other side. Who and Remember, it also emphasizes that Jonathan and that Saul have armor, and they have swords where most of the Israelites did not. And so you're the one who's equipped, and you're the king who's supposed to fight the battles. And what does Saul do? He says, I give tax-free status in my daughter's hand in marriage to anyone who'll do my work for me, right? Anyone who's going to go fight for me, that's what I'll do. And what is Goliath doing? He is blaspheming God. He's tearing down the covenant. But what does Israel have? What are the promises of Deuteronomy? When you're faithful to the covenant, God fights for you. And we saw that in Joshua. God fights for you to the point that none of your men are defeated. So Saul has no confidence in the, in the covenant. But here comes David. 
and David loves Yahweh, and David has a heart after God's own heart, and he hears this blasphemy, and his heart breaks because God is being defamed, and because we're not living the covenant, and he goes and he fights claiming the covenant promises, that when you trust Yahweh, Yahweh fights for you, not because I have armor, and not because I'm something special, because God fights for me, showing that the true king trusts in Yahweh, and Yahweh fighting for him. And it's here that I want us to, again, land our helicopter in chapter 18. Right after this victory, it's clear that David is the king. And verse 1 of 18, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took, Saul took him. Sorry, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then in verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What Jonathan is doing in stripping himself, these were, this was the, it was symbolic and it would be understood by those people. He's giving David the right of successorship. He's saying, David, you're the king and I'm showing that you're the king by passing to you the right of successorship. And again, when we get to First and Second Kings, you're going to see that this is not how, what anyone does. In the, in the north, when the king divides, you have assassinations and coups. You do everything you can to pass the line on to your son. You don't give it to somebody else. And Jonathan loves Yahweh. Jonathan loves Yahweh so much that Yahweh's choice is Jonathan's choice. And in fact, we never see Jonathan doing anything but showing covenant love to David and to Yahweh. Jonathan would have been a great king, right? Jonathan's not like his dad. But Jonathan doesn't fight to be king. He says... Here, you have the right of successorship. Um, again, in his commentary on this, um, on 1 Samuel, Dale Ralph Davies quotes a man named DeGraff, and he says, this deed, on the, this deed on his part, on Jonathan's part, was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over and against the Christ, who is truly Israel's king. Only faith causes us to be the lesser. Are we the kind of people that love God so much that we choose to be lesser, to advance others? Do we love the body of Christ and others in the body so much that we want to do what Jonathan did and say, this is how God's using you, this is what God wants to do. I'm going to be lesser to advance you because I love God and I want to advance what God's doing. Do we have that kind of love, that kind of faith, that kind of humility? Again, remembering Jonathan loved Yahweh, he could have been a great king. He wasn't like his father. But Jonathan loves Yahweh. He has the faith to be the lesser. Well, Saul, getting back in the helicopter, Saul <laughs> does not love David, and he's jealous of the success that God is giving David. And he can, because he has rejected God, we see Saul becomes increasingly insane. He, he's, he, God sends a spirit to torment him, and he just becomes insane from this jealousy. And for the rest of the book, I want you to see that what we've already talked about, the comparing and the contrasting. Every story we look at, we're going to see how Saul does not behave as a king and how David does. So it starts in chapter 22. David is fleeing for his life, and he had asked right the priest for um, help, and the priest didn't know that David was fleeing. And so when Saul comes to them and says, did you help David? And they said, yes, we've always helped David. He's your son-in-law, right? He's actually in the royal family. And Saul does not believe the truth of them, and he massacres the priests, the women, the children, and one man, Abiathar, escapes. So we see Saul is killing the priests, and more than that, the text also draws out, remember how none of Saul's men would raise their hand against the priests, but Doag the Edomite did? Saul's acting like an Edomite, 
And again, we keep saying that e Edom's going to really come out in the, in the prophets when we get to them. Um, Saul is not acting like an Israelite. But then that one priest, who does he flee to? He flees to David. And David says, I will protect you. And he does. He protects him. He protects his life. David protects the priesthood while Saul destroys it. Then in chapter three, 23, the Philistines come up and they attack the city of Calah. Who is supposed to be defending your nation, right? The, one of the most basic rules of a king is you defend your territories, you defend your cities. Saul's too busy chasing David. David goes and defends Calah. And then when David finds out that they were going to turn him over to Saul, David leaves so that Calah's not going to be massacred, so that they don't turn him over. He leaves. He doesn't fight for his rights. He doesn't fight. He, he waits on the Lord. And after he does that, in um, verse um, 24, no, sorry, verse 17 of chapter 23, Jonathan comes to him again. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan says, one, he strengthens him in the Lord. I love that phrase. But in, in almost every story, he's going to have this. It's a repeating frame the narrator keeps bringing up to us. In verse 17, you shall be king over Israel, and Saul knows it. He says, Saul knows you're supposed to be king. You're going to be the king. And then in chapter 24 and 26, David repeatedly saves Saul's life. And Saul himself says, I know that you're going to be the king. I know that how you have treated me righteously, that God's going to give you the kingship. But David, in saving Saul's life, he teaches us another important value of who the king is supposed to be. The king, he says, far be it for me to touch the Lord's anointed. Remember, Saul's trying to kill an innocent man. He's chasing him down. David's anointed the rightful king. David cuts a corner of his garment, and he feels so much guilt that he touched the Lord's anointed in that small way. How much more guilty is Israel when we get to the New Testament and they touch the Lord's anointed? You don't touch the Lord's king, right? You have to have reverence. And that term anointed, it means Messiah. It doesn't mean the Messiah. It's a lowercase m, but it means Messiah. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. You have reverence for the office of king. But then in chapter 25, remember the three Gs, no gals, no gold, no giddy up. We're going to have the story of, of um, Abigail. And Abigail comes, and what does she say in verse 25, 28? She says, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Everyone knows this. Who's fighting God's battles? David's fighting God's battles. What's Saul doing? Chasing David, right? Saul's not ruling as king. He's chasing David, but David fights God's battles. But the narrator drops in in verse 44 that David marries Abigail. He's already married to Michael, and he also marries Ahimene, right? Three wives, two too many. Then he just goes on, but it's a hint of things to come. It's something that we're worth noting. He's not following the law of the king like he should be. In chapter 26, again, he protects um, Saul's life, showing again the reverence for the king. And in 27, he flees to the Philistines. The only time you see Saul acting as king is when David leaves the country. So in chapter 27, David leaves the country, he flees to the Philistines, and Saul starts ruling again. And Saul goes to battle. And he's very afraid of how the battle's coming. And so we have this unique and interesting story about the witch of Endor, right? And if you're wondering what's going on, God is putting everything together to tell one story in one point. So he does allow Samuel to come back. So this is a real vision of Samuel. The witch does not bring him back. She does not have the power. She's shocked he's there, right? She screams in terror. She was not expecting this. But God has sent Samuel back, his prophet that he has worked so hard to establish, to give a message. And what is this message? What is God sending someone back from the dead to tell Israel and to tell Sam, um, Saul? In verse 17, 
the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor, David. If you weren't sure, and if you thought maybe David was a usurper, and if you thought maybe David wasn't the rightful king, let me send Samuel back from the dead and quell your doubts. He is the rightful king. While this is happening, the Amalekites come and they kidnap, right, David's wives and his men's wives and they take them away. And in doing this, God is giving David an alibi because David goes and pursues the Amalekites to save his family, to save the families of his men. And while he's doing that, he's three days away when the Philistines attack Saul and Saul is killed. So remember, David fled away to the Philistines. No one can say, oh, David used the Philistines to get rid of Saul or David used the Philistines to get the kingdom. He's fighting for his family. He's three days away. He's getting the Amalekites when Saul dies on Mount Gilboa. He is completely innocent of in any way trying to take the kingdom on his own. So why is establishing David as king so critical and showing his legitimacy so critical? It's because of the importance of the Davidic covenant, which we're going to get to next week. It's because of God's covenant promises are kingdom's promises. And God is going to display his glory through his king, and he wants us to understand that this is the line that he is going to work through. So we are going to see next week in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, I hope you're excited, what he's going to do with the covenant and what the ideal, we, and we've seen what the king is supposed to be, one who has a heart after Yahweh, who reverences the office of king, who trusts Yahweh's covenant promises to fight for Israel. That is what God is establishing in the theology of the king. If you please pray with me as we close. Lord, we thank you for your great sovereignty over all the details of scripture just to see how you are working to establish your purposes and how your working those purposes makes your son glorious. How understanding this will help us so much more understand who your son is and what kind of king he is and, and the depths of what that means for us because of what you're teaching us in First Samuel. So help us today to be women after your own heart who love you, who are willing by faith to be the lesser because we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.